Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talaya Dendi. I am a 10-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. This podcast is about sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who made it on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello, and welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode. I am your host, Talea Dindi. Today, our very special guest is Ruth Bachman. In February of 2003, Ruth was a left-handed woman, wife, and mother in apparent good health. She ate reasonably well, was physically active, had annual checkups, practiced meditation and yoga, attended church regularly, and volunteered in the community. Today, she is all of those things, plus the grandmother of four, except now, after diagnosis and treatment of soft tissue sarcoma, she is a right-handed amputee with a renewed purpose for life, which is a mission to share a message, equipping individuals with the perspective and resources necessary to navigate the inevitable changes that occur in life by design or by happenstance, while recognizing the powerful potential for transformation by embracing what is. Ruth has climbed mountains, written award-winning book, been a survivor advocate, and spoken to a wide variety of audiences, contributing her time, her resources, and her talents, fostering the collaboration of the science that heals the body with the critical role that mind and spirit play toward that end. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you very much, Talia. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. What an amazing bio, Ruth. You've done so much work over the years, and we will get to that further in this episode. Ruth, please share with us your cancer journey and how you learned that you had soft tissue sarcoma. It was 2003, and I had purchased myself ice skates for Christmas, and I had fallen a couple of times. So soon afterward, there was this soft, non-painful lump on the inside of my left wrist that I ignored. I thought I fell a couple of times on the ice. That's what this is. Everywhere I went for about the next uh, two months, I kept saying to people, so what do you think this is? What do you think this thing on my wrist is? And finally, a dear friend of mine said, Ruth, I think it's time for you to go to find out what that is. So I went to a young orthopedic surgeon um, that I didn't know. I'd never seen him before. And I said, what is this thing? And he took an x-ray and sent me that day for an MRI. Then his office called the next day and didn't say anything at all about sarcoma or cancer, but they said that they had made an appointment for me with Dr. Dennis Colosi at the University of Minnesota. So I took that under advisement. I was going on a trip. I thought, I'll do this when I get home. This is not a big deal. And even on my trip, I would say to people on my trip, so what do you think this thing is? When I came home, there was a message from the Department of Oncology and Hematology at the University of Minnesota. 
<laughs> oh boy. And asking me to pre-register for my appointment with Dennis Corsi. I thought, this is strange. I did what I was asked and I went to the appointment. I actually, honestly, truthfully, had a little panic attack in the tunnel mm. going to the clinic. And I actually had to go outside, use my phone and call and say, why am I going here? And they said, this is the only place that Dr. Dennis Closey sees patients. So I went and I sat in that waiting room and felt very uncomfortable. And when the nurse said, when I was taken back to the exam room, the nurse said, how are you? I said, I'm here to find out. Then when the doctor came in, I said, what am I doing here? He said, has anyone shown you your MRI? (laughs) I said, no, I don't know anything about this. So anyway, he showed it to me, the cross section of my arm, like a mortadella sausage. He said, we really don't know what this is until we do a biopsy. But whatever it was, it was a six inch mass that began in my hand, filled my wrist and extended up my forearm. So it was big. We scheduled the biopsy. And after the biopsy, when I was recovered and no longer in my anesthetized state, the doctor said, I am sorry to report that you have sarcoma. I'd never heard that word before. And I had no idea what it was. He wrote it down on his business card and sent me home. And of course, where's the first place you go when you get a cancer diagnosis? Oh, yes. The internet, (laughs) Google, (laughs) our friend Google. (laughs) So that's what I did. It was a little scary. I read that amputation is very often a part of the treatment for sarcoma, and I knew that my wrist was full, but what I really benefited from was that my next door neighbor is a doctor. She's a gynecologist. She had access to online research that she did for me, and she gave me a list of questions to take back to my first appointment with Dr. Cloacy after my biopsy. In those questions was, what is the acceptable margin for resection? Mm. Which means how much clean tissue do you have to take in addition to the tumor to feel that you have it all? And my doctor, Dennis Closey, and I do adore this man. I take pride in being the president of the Dr. Dennis Closey fan club. He said that question surprised him Mm. because the answer was 2.5 centimeters, which is 2.5 centimeters, an inch of clear tissue all the way around. Well, my wrist was full. I have 2.5 centimeters of clear tissue there. So at that first appointment, we talked about amputation and he was not prepared for that, that he was not going to go there because maybe the chemotherapy that was going to be prescribed would shrink the tumor, maybe whatever. Radiation was not a part of my treatment package because it makes surgery more difficult to heal from. I got this information, took it home. I went to another medical center, another cancer center for a second opinion and had the same diagnosis and not a very good experience with that doctor at all Mm -hmm. in terms of what their response was to the reality of my situation. I went back to Dennis Colosi and we had plans for three rounds of chemotherapy and then surgery. And then depending upon what the success of the chemotherapy was, potentially chemotherapy after the surgery. After two rounds of chemotherapy, the tumor was growing and not shrinking. The decision was that we would do the surgery early. Because there was no shrinking in the tumor at all, that meant that I was lucky. (laughs) That's what you are. Okay. (laughs) And and not having to have chemotherapy afterward. I was very concerned about 
managing all that I was going to have to manage without my dominant left hand anyway. That's and right. So to have to continue to not have hair and all of the rest of those things, I felt fortunate that I didn't have to have more chemotherapy. That's my cancer story. Now I have had people say to me, wow, Ruth, that's one of the easiest cancer stories I've ever heard. I don't and, know. <laughs> and the truth is, yes, in terms of diagnosis and finding someone to do treatment and being yeah. able to follow the treatment and then having the surgery. But the truth is, that I live with the success of my cancer treatment every single day. I live with amputation every single day. There's nothing easy about living. So, you know, that kind of a statement has informed my opinion that people will often say things that they intend to be somehow almost a compliment, but somehow yes. there's a certain backhandedness. It's like the person who said to me, Oh, Ruth, you're so lucky you didn't do anything before you lost your hand. You know, like be a piano player or be a hairstylist. Yes, you're right. I did not have a career that this affected. But trust me, the amputation of your dominant hand definitely affects your life. Absolutely. <laughs> and it just shows how people don't know how to talk about cancer. They don't know how to talk about these things. It just comes off really bad, especially when you're the person going through those things and you're trying to figure all of this out. You're trying to adjust to all of these different changes. When you hear those things, that can be really tough. As I said, I have grown accustomed to waiting for the cringe when people begin a sentence with you're so lucky. <laughs> yes. What's coming? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's coming. Yes, I do. Ruth, please tell the audience what soft tissue sarcoma is. It's fairly rare. So a lot of people may not know what that is. Well, sarcoma, as I said, when I was diagnosed, I had never really heard the word sarcoma. My daughter has reminded me that when she was in college, she did have a friend, a young woman who had sarcoma. So I had heard the word before, but it was certainly not in my vocabulary. In my internet research, I found out that it is indeed a rare cancer that affects the connective tissue in your body. And the definitive place to go that I didn't know about <laughs> at the time is an organization called Rain in Sarcoma, R-E-I-N in sarcoma.org. It is an organization here in Minnesota that is really an authority on sarcoma and also raises wonderful money for research and provides a community for sarcoma patients. It's really a wonderful organization. And even though there are 100 different types of sarcoma tumors, it is a very rare form of cancer because all of those kinds of sarcoma make up about 1% of all cancers. So it is rare and there are not everyone and not every doctor has heard of it. And the issue of very often an issue that comes with sarcoma is that it is misdiagnosed and it's misdiagnosed because just like people like me who have this soft lump on your wrist, you go, what is this thing? People will say, oh, it's a cyst. Oh, oh, my friend got that when they got a new golf glove or something. <laughs> it's just the stories that, that people come up to help you excuse it. And if I had gone to a doctor, I was not in pain. I'm sure if I'd gone to my primary care physician, he would have said, Ruth, I'm sure it's nothing. We'll just yeah. wait until there's some pain. So going to this orthopedic surgeon who was familiar with sarcoma and then did the next steps and then made the appointment for me so that I was 
wasn't, you know, thinking, well, I'm sure it's nothing. It'll be fine. Because when sarcoma metastasizes, it's a very bad thing. Okay. Osteosarcoma is much more common in young people. Osteosarcoma is something that does affect young children. So doctors will very often excuse it or dismiss it by saying, oh, they injured themselves playing sports or they fell down somewhere or they're having growing pains. And as I said, when it metastasizes, it is deadly. So when sarcoma has brochures and they have an education program about lumps, bumps, and bruises, that you don't <laughs> ignore them, that you continue to seek a doctor who is going to listen to what the concerns are so that you can get diagnosed properly and then get treatment. And not every sarcoma results in amputation. Okay. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. <laughs> no, even osteosarcoma does not okay. always result in amputation. It just happens to be what my successful treatment was. And really here we are in 2022. I am a 19 year wow. sarcoma survivor. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's wonderful. When you received this diagnosis, Ruth, how did you feel at that time? Did you think that you would be a 19-year survivor? What was going through your mind? Oh, I was afraid. Losing my dominant hand was something that I just could not imagine. I actually had the benefit of meeting with a couple of sarcoma survivors who had lost hands as a result of their successful treatment. That was really helpful in terms of having me understand that life does go on and that there would certainly be challenges ahead and things that I had to learn, but that attitude was perhaps the most important thing. Now, sadly, one of those amputee mentors died soon after my successful treatment. At the time that I met her, she was a 15-year survivor, but mm -hmm. she had already had two reoccurrences. Oh. And so that's... The, it was her sarcoma that ultimately took her life, but she had survived for 15 years. And the other young man is still out there somewhere, lefty, wherever you are. <laughs> he was a great mentor to me in terms of using a prosthetic device or not and surviving cancer. I do have a prosthetic device, but I really don't use it. It gets in my way more than anything. So I have become very adept at using my remaining limb. That's wonderful. And it's unfortunate about your friend slash mentor. That can be really tough. I know for myself, I have survivor's remorse at times when I hear of people that have passed from cancer. And when you've been through it, whether you know that person or not, it does touch your soul. It's just like, wow, another person gone to cancer. I had a woman contact me through my website a year ago, 15 months ago now, and she was the same age as I at diagnosis, but she had been misdiagnosed. She'd already had a couple of surgeries and she was talking to me about amputation. And I told her my story. And of course it's her decision what she should do. So she had her amputation. We went back and forth. I was so hopeful. She had her right hand amputated. So I sent her my whole stack of left hand leather gloves nice. so that she could use those. But sadly, she didn't get good margins and the, the cancer had spread. Then she had an additional surgery and she had more chemotherapy and she still died. That was a very difficult death for me. When you talk about survivor's remorse, it just, it really touched me because I had never met her in person, but we had become close enough in email and phone conversations that I was really hopeful for her. And my hope did not carry the day. Yeah. 
Unfortunately, that happens sometimes. That's why it's so important for us to talk about these things openly because there's so many people out there that are trying to go through this alone or they have friends and family members who are not sure what to do. And it, it really does. It just touches your soul when people unfortunately leave this earth due to cancer. One thing, Ruth, that I'm very happy is for you that you were able to find support. And it sounds like you had really good support systems. Did you find that early in your diagnosis? Oh, I did. I had a really wonderful, strong network of support. It is so important to find those people who support you. Now, at the same time, I also found people who came out of the woodwork who thought that they would be helpful, or maybe their intention was to be helpful. But what I discovered was that they just wanted to, there was a certain, I don't know, stardom, notoriety or something Mm -hmm. that went along with this with this unique cancer that people somehow just wanted to be around me. What I did was I controlled that situation. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> there, it's the kind of thing where, where everybody wants to bring you food and everybody wants to do things for you. And you only have so much energy in a day and you're going through chemotherapy and recovering from surgery. I put my niece in charge of meals. And I said that I only wanted meals during the week of chemotherapy. And now this is going to sound like a bad joke, but I'm going to say it anyway. I told her that I did not want to die of Lutheran cooking. said I didn't want any hot dishes and I didn't want any bars. I also didn't want to have to return dishes to anybody. So anyway, that was one of the things that I controlled. And then, as I said, people just, oh, they wanted to see me. They wanted to spend time with me. I had another friend who offered to have a once a month potluck. Okay. And we sent out email invitations to anybody who wanted to come to that once a month potluck. We had a starting time and an ending time. We could be together and I could be there with all those people. And it's not that I was the center of attention because they could talk to each other too. Yeah. But it was a way for me to be able to meet and greet a larger number of people without having to do it on an individual basis. And being able to do that, my husband was afraid and he had the opinion that maybe we should cancel everything and Mm -hmm. live cancer. And my doctor supported me in saying, don't cancel anything unless you have to and, and keep living your life. And my daughter was going to be married two months after my surgery. And so we talked about moving the wedding and the doctor said, I don't think you need to do that. They all had their issues with this diagnosis. But what I encouraged them to do was to find people to talk to and to find their support network as well so that they could have somebody to share their feelings with because I couldn't handle all of their feelings in addition to everything that I was handling. Yes. It's so important. And this is often forgotten. It's so important for caregivers to get support as well and family members to get support. Because like you said, you're trying to work through your own feelings and emotions and all the different changes that you have to go through. I want to circle back and say, I really like the potluck idea. (laughs) That's a great idea. You just kind (laughs) of make yourself available to everyone at once. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a great idea. That saves some energy. Yes, it does. The other thing that I really like is that your doctor told you to keep living life. And that is one of the things that I found to be a little bit tough when you Mm -hmm. have this major thing into your life is keeping Mm -hmm. some form of normalcy. But when you're able to do that, it does make things a little bit easier. 
Absolutely. And again, it's a part of what can give you a sense of personal power and being in control. You get to choose. You get to choose who you want to be with and you get to choose what it is that you're going to participate in. I think that by being able to say, I'm going to live life and I'm going to make choices, it gives you a sense of personal power. There's a book in this book. It talks about if you only have a hundred dollars worth of energy in a day, and you don't have a savings account from yesterday, and you don't have a pocket to pick anything, put anything in for tomorrow. How are you going to spend that $100 worth of energy? What this book encouraged me to do, which I did do, was to make a list of all of the people that I saw in my regular schedule of time and all of the things that I did in my regular life and times. And then I got to prioritize. I got Mm -hmm. to prioritize the people who were not going to be top on my list. I got to prioritize the things that were not going to be top on my list. And it didn't mean that they all came back on my list after (laughs) my treatment either. But it was a really valuable experience to do that, to really look at what it was that I was doing and know that I wanted to keep doing some things and to set that priority. Yes. One thing about cancer, it will make you realize what's really important in life. That's for sure. At least that's what I learned. The things that I used to worry about and try to squeeze in, I had to let some of those things go. To your Mm -hmm. point, you Mm -hmm. have to prioritize. (laughs) Yep. Yep, you do. Ruth, one thing I would like for you to share with the audience is how long was your recovery time? You had treatment, you had to have surgery, you're learning to work with your non-dominant arm. How long was your recovery? The benefit that I had was that I knew that I was going to lose my hand right away. And so I could start using my right hand in the beginning. So I met with occupational therapists and physical therapists that in and of itself is another story Um, (laughs) (laughs) to help me know what I was going to do. And again, I was able to prioritize what I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to dress myself. I wanted to be able to put on my makeup and I wanted to be able to cook and I wanted to be able to use my computer and type. So that helped me to know the people that I needed to see. And as I said, the occupational therapists and were very helpful in terms of, you know, but now now they weren't always helpful because they didn't always give me the suggestions that I wanted. And so then I would have to find another physical therapist or occupational therapist who would show me or help me to know how I was going to do those things. But I then got to set those priorities and move forward. And I think that one of the last things that I did was actually go to an occupational therapist about typing with one hand. And that was at least four months after my surgery. My surgery was in June of 2003 and my daughter's wedding was in August. So that was the focus for those first two months. And then after that is when I had a chef friend come and help me with cooking. And then I went to the occupational therapist about typing. So I would say that my recovery from surgery per se was faster. I did not have, I did not have pain. I do not have pain. I was not on pain medication. I'm told that I'm rare. Nobody should think that they are disappointing themselves or anybody else if they do have pain or if they take medication, but I did not, I didn't have to have chemotherapy. So my recovery was much swifter perhaps than for other people. Wonderful. Ruth, when you saw people that maybe you hadn't seen in a few years, how did they respond to you? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> I just, that just popped in my mind. I'm like, I bet people that had not seen her and weren't aware of what you had been through. Yeah. I bet they just kind of looked like, wow, or I bet they really didn't know what to say. They <laughs> Talk didn't know about what that. <laughs> and in fact, one, again, this neighbor who was so helpful at my diagnosis, and she was so helpful throughout, she made a basket of one-handed toys for me to have at the, at the hospital for people to play <laughs> with me. And then we also had a farewell to arm party. Oh. And so it was a social gathering in her yard where all of those people who she really invited my whole network of people to come and see me so that they could see me and get used to seeing me that way. Someone commented, not in that group of people, but someone commented, don't you want to get um, an artificial hand so that when you walk into a room, people won't notice that you don't Mm -hmm. have a hand? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, not at all. I don't want a sleeve filler to make other people comfortable. I want people to see me the way I am. And Mm -hmm. I don't have a hand. And in fact, most people comment that it is not the first thing that they notice. Children, on the other hand, notice. And I am very eager and honest to respond to children who look at me like, yikes, she doesn't have a hand. And so I will say to them, oh, have you noticed that I don't have a hand? Mm-hmm. And they'll be very shy and shake their head, yes. And I'll say, would you like to hear the story? And they'll say, yes. And usually there's a parent there who was trying to say, oh, and I say, no, it's okay, it's okay. And then I say, I had something growing in my hand that was not good. Mm-hmm. And I went to the doctor and the doctor told me that in order to not have that thing anymore, I was going to have to not have my hand. So the doctor helped me and I don't have my hand. And I don't have that thing growing in my hand anymore. And I'm fine. I can be here. I'm at the state fair. It was a little girl at my granddaughter's birthday party who did this. And so I said, I'm fine. I can help at Amy's party. Everything is fine. And when I walked away, she said, I hope when I'm old, I don't get sarcoma. And I thought, I am not old. (laughs) (laughs) You were more concerned about that. (laughs) I was much more concerned about that. <laughs> I but love it. it. I think sometimes people will see me on the street, and then when they get closer to me, they'll say something like, Oh my gosh, how do you tie your scarf so nicely? <laughs> Fair question. <laughs> I really love your attitude, Ruth, and just your whole outlook on everything that you've been through because it is a lot, and just how you've been able to transition through life and you decided early on that I still want to do a lot of the things that I used to do for myself. You took the initiative, you took the power and said, I'm going to start early on this. I know what my diagnosis is. I know what's going to have to happen now. So let me take charge and step in. That speaks volumes. And again, I didn't do it all by myself. I went to people who knew how to help me and I asked them to help me. And and if for some reason... Yep. And if for some reason I didn't get the answer that I wanted, I found a new somebody to help me. (laughs) Yes. Asking for help. Asking for help. It is. It is very important. Ruth, what has cancer taught you? When you asked before about people who 
saw me after my amputation. And it's like, they would say, you're the same, you're the same person. And what I came up with was a metaphor for this experience. And it is an hourglass. If cancer is the narrow spot in an hourglass and I'm the sand, then I've traveled from the top through that tight spot to the bottom the same sand, but with a different arrangement. And what I've discovered is that you can go kicking and screaming through that narrow spot, but you're going to go. And when you reach the bottom, you can stick your head in the sand and pretend that nothing has happened, or you can rest patiently and discover new things about yourself and those with whom you travel in life, and then sift through your sand and use the resources that you find in order to move forward. And that is the metaphor that, that I use in life. And that is absolutely something that cancer has taught me. I love that metaphor. And it's so true. It's all about perspective and mindset that really can dictate what happens next. Great metaphor, Ruth. Thank you. My other question is, what advice do you have for people who are diagnosed with cancer? And then the other part of that is, what advice also do you have for amputees? For anyone who's diagnosed with cancer, don't depend on the internet for your best <laughs> research. <laughs> Find an organization like Rain and Sarcoma. Find those organizations that are service organizations related to a specific kind of cancer because they will very often have excellent, excellent resources. And they will also have people that you can be in touch with in order to provide you mentorship or help to navigate your journey. When I think about friends that I know with breast cancer, there are organizations that match you up one-to-one -one. and brain and sarcoma does that as well. They no longer call me about doing that, <laughs> but they do that as well. And so to find people who have traveled that path and navigated that journey and are there to share that story with you and support you, that's important. And to find those resources, to search them out. The other thing that's so important, I think, is that cancer was not the first bad thing that happened in my life. It wasn't okay. the first narrow spot that I encountered. <laughs> and I also know that if you have an opportunity to reflect on what is it that helped me to survive in the past, and you put that in your resources toolbox, and you draw on those things. And it is music. It is, you know, participation in worship. It is being with a circle of friends. It is laughing. It is reading books. It is being in nature. It is all of those things that if you think about tough spots in your life, if you think about narrow spots, there are ways that you have survived. You're alive today. Again, it's not the first narrow spot that you've encountered. And so to look at the resources that you used in the past and really draw on those when you have something dramatic like a cancer diagnosis. That and I is, can't remember your second question. That's okay. The second question was <laughs> the second question was what advice do you have for amputees? Oh. <laughs> my my advice is that well, and just like every cancer journey is unique, every amputee responds to a loss of a limb in a very unique way. Finding mentors is very important. And again, there are absolutely organizations that you can be in contact with to talk to people. I was very fortunate to have word of mouth people, but I also went to a prosthetist and they put me in touch with one of their clients. That was the young man that I talked to. So to find people who have experienced amputation, 
to know how they navigated and then to see that you have choices. As I said, I've got prosthetic devices, but I have found them to be not helpful for me. But that doesn't mean that somebody else is not going to find a myoelectric hand the best thing that they could possibly use. My counsel for anyone is I subscribe to the National Cancer Institute definition of a survivor. And a cancer survivor is one who is living with, through, and beyond a cancer diagnosis. And my emphasis is on living. So that's always my counsel. How is it that you can continue to live life and move forward to say, yes, this has happened. And now what? And move forward. Great advice. That's so true. Now what's next? That's right. How do I keep moving forward? Yep. And throughout our conversation, Ruth, the theme of asking for help and support have been common themes throughout our conversation. And so I'm hoping that the listeners are picking up on that mm-hmm. and really making the connection of how important it is to ask for help mm-hmm. and to get the support that you need early and often because mm-hmm. the help that you need, that can change throughout. Yep. And so just being in tune, if you can, with the things that you need, you may not always know exactly mm-hmm. what that is, but just communicating in some way that I'm in need of this thing, I'm not sure what it is, <laughs> and someone may be able to help guide you in the right direction. Right. That's very true. It's very true. And I think that being able to, again, a gift is to be able to spend time really looking at how is it that I want to live life? It's just like I told my family when I was first diagnosed, I'm going to be well cared for in terms of my medical care. And I want you to be well cared for too. I just can't do that. They needed to find people that they could talk to. And I needed to draw on the resources that I had as well. And we still were together. Yeah. And it's great that you were very direct and honest with them. Sometimes I know that's tough for people yeah. to just say, I can't help you right now. Yeah. <laughs> but That's wonderful because you're in a sense, you're releasing them and saying, Hey, I know that I'm going through a lot, but I want to make sure you're cared for too. And to me, that's a form of love. I agree. I agree. Totally. Ruth, I want to transition a bit and talk about your book, Hmm. Growing Through the Narrow Spots. The title is very interesting to me. (laughs) And after talking to you more, I understand it better. Yeah. Why did you write this book, Ruth? I have been a speaker and during COVID, I let that go. So I'm no longer sharing my message with audiences per se. This kind of an audience is wonderful. So it was 2012, 2013. When I started speaking in, when I started really speaking in 2009, people would say, gosh, do you have a book? I want to share your message. This is so meaningful. Do you have something? And I didn't have anything. And the, the, the universe brought all kinds of things together. And I was introduced to Tristan Publishing here in the Twin Cities. And they came to hear me speak. And they said, yes, indeedy, you have a book. So I wrote the book. And they had an editor help to bring it to the size that they wanted. And we had decided that it was going to be an inspirational book. This is not a 300-page dossier of my entire story. <laughs> this is in, intended to be an inspirational gift book. My husband is a wonderful photographer. And so all of the photographs in the book are his. 
And so we paired the photographs with the things that we decided were important for the story in terms of inspiring other people to move through and grow through the narrow spots in their life. On the cover of the book, there's a set of stairs with some plants growing through the concrete. And that certainly is an example of a narrow spot. That's how it came to be. And it's available. It's available on Amazon. It's available at various retailers. And it's also available on my website, ruthbachman.com, if someone wants to order it there. That's wonderful. Thank you for writing that book, Ruth. It really resonates with me now that you've really shared some time with us Mm -hmm. and I know more about your story. I could see the natural progression to your book. Thank you. It is meaningful. I'm I have to acknowledge the fact that I'm very grateful that somehow it all came together to be a meaningful message. Absolutely. Ruth, before we end today, I'd like Mm -hmm. to ask my guests these two questions. The first one is, what is something that you've learned in life that you would like to share with the listeners if you have not already shared it? (laughs) I think that the hourglass (laughs) metaphor is probably the thing that I have learned the most. But actually, at the end of that, when I said to be able to say, no matter what circumstance it is, to be able to say to myself, yes, this has happened. And now what? And that is living with abundance. So being able to look at life with abundance, not necessarily as Pollyanna wearing rose-colored glasses, sitting at a table for one over on the side somewhere, (laughs) but to really be able to say, yes, this has happened. Now is living with abundance. Yes, but is living with without abundance. And that is not what I would wish for anyone. So that is the key. What is next for me? My grandchildren are getting older. I'm having a wonderful time with them. COVID is over. I'm going to (laughs) travel. And I continue to accept invitations like this one or from individuals to share and inspire people to know that life does go on. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ruth, for your time. I've enjoyed our conversation. You have shared a lot of great information that I'm sure will help our (laughs) listeners. And then also, Ruth, I just want to honestly thank you from the bottom of my heart for being such a great advocate for people through these tough times. You're a great example of how to live life abundantly and to keep going. Thank you. Thank you very much. It It is the lesson I learned. So thank you. My pleasure. That's it for this episode. But before we end, I'd like to give a shout out for the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. That is it. Until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it please be sure to subscribe. And if you appreciate the show, drop a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For notes from the show, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. After you check out the show notes, head over to my gift shop and show yourself or someone special in your life some love with gifts of encouragement, hope, and positive affirmations. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.